Welcome to Intergalactic Tarbush, eclectic conversations from the Mena with Iyad al-Baghdadi and me, Ahmed Gatnash. We talk about politics, activism, tech, spirituality, mental health and more. This episode was recorded a few days before the invasion of Ukraine began, when a large part of us was hoping that there would be some kind of walk down instead of war. We were still speculating about Putin's motivations, and it was not clear how severe or irrational his actions would be, or how strong Europe's response and sanctions would be. This context will make it easier to understand Iyad and Ahmed's discussion. Hey man, so guess what I did just today? Tell me. So I went down to the store and I got a waterproof Bluetooth player, so I can put it in the shower so I can listen to podcasts in the morning. I'm going in the opposite direction. I'm starting to, you know, try and cut listening to audio because I, I realized that I'm basically like listening to stuff throughout the entire day and I have no space for my own thoughts anymore. Well, I mean, that, that, that does become a problem because like I did once try to like up, like increase, uh, you know, optimize my time to the point that I actually listen all the time. And I realized, you know, you kind of need the silence, but then you know, on, on, I guess on the topic of podcasts, uh, last, you know, the, the last conversation we had, we were talking about kind of about, about cancel culture. And we had this, this, uh, this line of line of thought that kind of came up, came out of the Joe Rogan uh, experience. And I mentioned how there is, I mean, there's a bit of genius to four hour podcasts because you sit, sit down with someone, you know, if it's a very short thing, they can kind of prepare their, you know, they prepare what they have to say. Uh, and they can kind of come across really, really well. And they can kind of, uh, you know, uh, you don't really get to know who they are because they can actually put on a face. But it's a four-hour podcast. Eventually, you really do get to know them, right? So I kind of appreciate that. But then I never had the time to actually listen to four-hour podcasts. And, you know, I'm, I'm not going to take four-hour four hour showers either. So, like, it's not gonna it's not going to change anything. Do you not listen on chipmunk speed? <laughs> Uh, I mean, I, I try, but there's always a, there, there's always a, there's always a limit, but you know, you, you need to explain to the audience what, uh, what chipmunk speed is. Oh, chipmunk speed is when you're so desperate to optimize your time and, uh, cram stuff into a space that you start amping up the, the podcast playback speed. Yeah. I yeah. think after double speed, you start to lose track of who's who because they all sound like chipmunks. Oh, I mean, but how much, how much can you retain at two, like at, at two X? I find that, um, information delivery like information per minute is a lot slower in audio than it is when i read um so i actually mm. start getting restless when i'm having to listen to like these days i can't even stay with like a news broadcast because it's kind of slow um even like youtube videos i normally put them up to 1.25 oh, you wired your brain for like 2x yeah i just need that fire hose of information <laughs> to to be even <laughs> pumping even harder i mean i've, I've started to wonder like honestly I, uh, I was having a conversation with someone yesterday. I was like wondering how social media has kind of rewired the way that we think, like rewired our brains. Uh, and I've, one of those one of those ways in which I have noticed it about myself is that I no longer have the patience to read uh, a book or, or an article when I could just get the gist of it from a thread. Uh, I mean, don't get me wrong. I still read books. I still enjoy reading, but a lot of the time, I'm like, you know, just give me the get to the point already. You know, I don't want the story. Just get to the point. You know, and so sometimes I appreciate that. 
social media has kind of made us, uh, you know, c- consume information a different way. You get uh, the vision without the fluff. And I guess without the fluff, exactly. And that's why I kind of appreciate threads on Twitter. Um, and that's why I'm thinking, you know, maybe we should acknowledge that threads are actually a format now. I mean, they, they came up almost by almost by accident. I mean, uh, not not really by accident, but basically by, by you know, it's, it's kind of uh, a necessity. Uh, you had t- tweets and then people started replying to themselves so that, you know, th- to make a thread. And then, you know, Twitter jumped on that's like, yeah, let's let's make that, you know, native. Yeah. And I wonder what this looks like when you extrapolate it like 50 years or 200 years. Um like imagine a scenario in which kids are being educated with threads. Threads, exactly. I mean, I don't know if uh, I mean we, we we kind of went through that when we were writing our book, and uh, I actually had to to send something to the editor and say, you know, like how do we how do you, what is the right way to cite to write a citation for a quote for a for a, for a tweet? Because now it is it is a source, you know. Yeah. Especially if it's like a verified account, and, you know, you can always say if this person said this, you know. It's really interesting. Uh, I think uh, we're kind of, you know, we're too close to something really big, like the internet, social media, etc. I think that they're really history changing, but we're too close to them to really see their impact. Yeah, it's like um, in the, what do you call it, like the Gutenberg era, where you're starting to get mass production of books and like probably nobody thought what happens when a million people can read this. You're just thinking, oh, let me have... uh, this treatise on reform of the church be more widely available, not how does this change the entire education system and how does this uh, shake the founda- the foundations of political power when information is more widely available and what does universal literacy look like? I think there is there is a deeper there's a deeper angle here. Uh, I think that the definition of humanity itself expanding because of this contact. Um, think of it this way: like if you know the human race. Uh, you know Homo, the, the the you know hom- not Homo sapiens, but really before that, Homo erectus, basically. You know, um, is two million around two million years old, right? For the majority of our life on this planet, we lived in small family units or clans or tribes. Uh, we did not really interact with others, and a lot of these interactions were either trade or war. A lot of the interactions were violent. Um, and I suppose that our definition for humanity was really limited to the people around us, to, to, you know, our, you know, our, our tribe or our village or our hunting group or hunting group or whatever. And I think that with time, with more contact and with more contact technology, communication technology, of course, like it, it would be thousands of years before we even had technology. I think the definition of who is and is not, I mean, even the colonial era, for example, they were talking about civilized and savage. Uh, I mean, the word barbarian itself comes from a Greek uh, word, which means, you know, someone who can't speak Greek. Uh, I guess, you know, two things happened very recently. First is the so globalization. What you're saying is that it's, it's easier to otherize people when you don't have uh, some kind of intercommunication yeah and there was no footage you know like basically something happens across the world you have no idea about it of course how do you care about it and so it's easy to kind of say you know these people i don't even have to think about them essentially the definition of humanity when we say humanity basically 
uh, in a certain way means people who have the same rights as us, people who have the same condition as us, people who are like us, you know? Mm. Uh, I think that the definition kept expanding with time, and I think it took a huge leap when we had the globalization of the English language, where people from many different cultures, many different languages can speak in the same language, uh, which came, of course, with the internet. And then we have social media, which, you know, kind of, I can speak to anybody. I can, I can just tweet something and maybe the first person who reads it might be in Brazil or, you know, Portugal or, or, you know, in China or whatever. Um, I, I think that this is, you know, it's, 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 there is a social, uh, philosophical, political impact, etc. Uh, an impact as to our, our really definition of what humanity is, but we're just way too close to it to see it. And But I think it's really big. I'm, I'm not grasping this, I don't think, so I'm going to have to sit with it for a while. Yeah, or maybe we could, uh, you know, uh, m- maybe we'll expect one of our audience members to kind of uh, throw something back at us. Or essentially say that, you know what, uh, this is a stupid idea, think of something, <laughs> think of something else. <laughs> yeah, I want somebody to explain this to me better. Um, kind of, uh, I guess you could see it as people who belong to different tribes or even empires at one point, seeing people from outside that group as being like almost an alien species. Like the definition of humanity is kind of something quite modern now because we all see ourselves as being one species, whereas previously those political divides, well, at different times they were a lot harder. No, but there, there was... I mean, there was scientific racism. There, there was. I mean, the, even our history—the idea that we all came from Africa—I mean, the species basically came from Africa—is uh, was was controversial. You know, like a hundred years ago, even less than hundred years ago. Um, I mean, when I was uh, studying this in school, um, we were kind of taught the history of the idea. Of course, they taught us that you know this is this is how it is now. This is like basically this is the science on us now. But they're like, you know, there was other theories that assumed that different human races, that first of all, that races existed, but also that different human races evolved separately from each other, almost like you were, there's actual biological differences between different human beings, uh, between basically that, that we don't even come from the same, you know, uh, we didn't even evolve from the same uh, uh, population. Um, so there was scientific racism. The definition of of uh, of, uh, of humanity itself has evolved. Hmm. So from the very big to the much smaller, and I'm still thinking about Russia and Putin. Um, it was hmm. quite interesting when you mentioned. Uh, so I saw like a news article about uh, the meeting Emmanuel Macron had with him, and how he came out of it like a six-hour meeting saying. This guy is bizarrely obsessed with history and doesn't stop talking about it. And that fascinated me. I didn't get the reason why. Um, And then you said something like he's a 70-year-old man who knows he's going to die soon. So he's become obsessed with uh, his legacy. His legacy. I mean, this is one interpretation. To be honest, I'm not completely sure. There are people who think... So first of all, by the time this episode comes out, the world is going to be, to look different. I hope that by the time this comes out, we don't have a war, uh, but it's quite possible that there will be a war. Uh, but it's still going to be relevant to speak about Putin and his uh, his personality. Uh, I I I remember seeing two things on my timeline. One was about 
is he is there something wrong with him is there kind of an illness something you know like like did they have a personality change in the last few years reminds me that reminds me of a lot of uh Gaddafi speculation about his Gaddafi and even Saddam Saddam Hussein um you know Gaddafi absolutely he was nuts yeah (laughs) I mean but but with, with Putin there's this speculation that there has been a recent change and people are kind of, some people are speculating that maybe it's COVID. You know, basically, he has kind of some, like something happened, mm-hmm. you know? I don't know if it's true. I don't know if it's really credible. But it's interesting that people are like, you know, people who know him is like, you know, he has kind of changed somehow as he became darker in the last few years. Uh, and the second really is this idea that maybe he's obsessed with his legacy. Maybe he is an old man. He's been, you know, on top of uh, the Russian state for 20 years. He realizes that at some point he has to make transition plans, you know, kind of plans of you know what, what, what comes next for Russia, and he has to. He's at an age where he has to think about his legacy, uh, which kind of reminds me of the thing that I was uh, I was talking to a friend recently, and I was talking about myself because you know I'm, I'm 44, I'm going to be 45, right? Um, and I've been kind of thinking about my my workout routine. Uh, because I haven't been working out for a while. I had like an injury and I was waiting for it to heal. And then after that, inertia took over and I didn't really, uh, didn't really pick up uh, another exercise routine, right? And I was thinking, you know, at 45, I'm not, I'm not at a fuck it age. You know, like if I was 20, I was like, you know, if I have a problem, I'll fix it later. I'm still young. You know, if I'm 30, I'm like, yeah, I mean, I'm still, I still have a few years. I, I can, I can tolerate that. If I'm 60 or 70, I'm like, again, I'm at like a fuck it age because like, you know, I'm too old now, you know, uh, but that at 40, I'm like, no, I, I still have like 20, 30 years. I have to fix this. <laughs> so I'm, I'm thinking Putin is probably doesn't think that way because he's a leader and he's on top of a country. It's like, no, I mean, now I have, a, I have a legacy. I have to think about this. Well, the strange thing is most people who kind of have that psychological crisis at his age might go out and do something crazy like uh, blow their retirement money on a sports car or, I don't know, try and marry someone half their age or something. (laughs) Instead, Putin tries to invade a neighboring country. But it's like the the same small man psychology at play, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, of course, let's not exaggerate the fact that there are valid geopolitical reasons for his actions. Uh, never mind the, the unhinged history that you know the you know completely crazy ethno ethno nationalist history. But there are kind of and we spoke about it in the last episode about how you know there are geopolitical elements, uh, and we might be touching upon this also on you know on our other podcast, Arab Tyrant Manual, at some point. Uh, but one thing that I found really interesting is really this intersection between. Um, I mean, this was a, this was an idea or a kind of a thought that that uh, that we were discussing uh, a while ago. Um, how Bitcoin fits into this, uh, because we know that you know, like like this, this is all questions like, why doesn't Putin decide to pursue kind of you know industrial scale Bitcoin mining as a way to raise funds? Um, what do you think? There's, there's also another angle to that, which is uh, the North Korean policy, mm. which is, you know, Russia kind of has the same natural resource of a lot of people who are very good at science, maths, computer programming, etc. Um, what North Korea does is it takes them, puts them to work in the cyber division of the military and has them hacking companies and banks, etc. around the world 
um, and you know launching ransomware attacks, etc., and trying to gather all this money in cryptocurrencies and then trying to you know launder it in order to be able to fund a part of the state budget because they're so tight on money. And I was thinking, if uh, Putin does take this too far and Russia ends up even more heavily sanctioned, um, he's going to have a big economic problem on his hands and. Like, this is probably the kind of way that a thug would uh, try to solve that, raising money through illicit sources. You know, he'll probably turn to organized crime and sponsoring organized crime throughout Europe. He'll probably turn to cyber weapons and hacking ransomware, that kind of thing, stealing money. And he'd probably turn to cryptocurrency because it's anonymous. Uh, it's kind of uh, resistant to tracking, not, not uh, impossible to track, but it can make it a little harder if you're skilled and because uh, you basically can convert energy directly into money because uh, you use energy to power bitcoin mining machines on a mass scale um, and produce bitcoin which is like inflation resist inflation resistant and appreciates over time and you add that to the state budget so i mean i i have i have a i have a feeling that it's if he does that i don't think so first of all there's no evidence that this was part of his war preparations. I think, so it could be, it could be that he's preparing that as one of his options. But if you look at what he did ahead of, uh, you know, ahead of uh, uh, the, the, the recent events, uh, so he upped, he tried to basically sanction proof the ruble uh, by building up his, his, uh, his, uh, what do you say, his reserves, you know, mostly foreign currency and, and gold. Uh, this is to back the currency. Right, so it's not for a bu for the budget. It's not exactly going to spend it on people, but you know, he's basically to stabilize his currency, which means he still believes in his currency. Right. Uh, the thing is, if he pursues you know large scale Bitcoin mining, and this becomes a thing, uh, you know, for you know, uh, uh, the, the you know usage of Bitcoin kind of becomes normalized inside Russia. Um, it's going to be a it's going to have a damaging impact on the ruble because people, you know, uh, I, I was actually talking to Alex Gladstein recently about this point, and he's like, you know what, this is kind of a uh, a Trojan horse because what if if he does this, he's going to wreck the the ruble. He's going to lose control of the economy. Then it's, it's a disaster in multiple ways because a you end up with capital flight because people start dumping the ruble to buy Bitcoin, and b you push your own population towards a currency which is harder for you to control or surveil. So the only way this would work is if you build state capacity for Bitcoin mining whilst keeping like possession of Bitcoin illegal. So it's something you can do, but not the population. Exactly. So this is what I was going to get to. This is going to be like really interesting if Russia becomes the biggest miner of Bitcoin, a state level miner of Bitcoin, but Bitcoin is banned in the country. And that would, uh, so that's a long-term play. That would take years to build up the capacity in mining because, you know, the, the world uh, supply chain in microchip manufacture is incredibly centralized. Um, and it's been shown to be very vulnerable over the last couple of years. Like you have car plant, car production plants across the world, which are idle because they can't get the microchips that the cars need. So like that would have to be built up over years. Um, yeah. And it would be interesting to see if they do do that, um, how it would happen, whether it would be detected in advance and whether, you know, other countries would try to stop it. Um, if it ever did happen, um, it would be very concerning because then you even have the possibility of other countries treating Bitcoin as like a hostile tool of the enemy um, because it's giving 
Putin, uh, you know, sanction resistance. I mean, they kind of already are. I mean, a lot of people are talking to, to about Bitcoin as a as a threat to institutions, a threat to democracy, etc. I think this is kind of really yeah, but that's more on a theoretical. It's more on a theoretical level at the moment. If it was ever mm. proven that this is being used at a, a large scale, then that would be totally different. Yeah, but I remember this is kind of the same arguments that was that was said about encrypted messages. You know, when before Signal, when we had Wicker, etc. You know. This is like going to enable money laundering, etc. Now it's it's accepted as mm, as then, you know one of our. At one point back in I don't know if it was the eighties or the seventies, uh, encryption technology was banned. Like it was uh, classified as a weapon by the U.S. and you couldn't uh, leave the country with it. Like there were yeah PGP was, and that's how how the PGP basically the person who wrote the PGP protocol I think fled to Sweden or you know or kind of sent the code to Sweden to be to be compiled there. Uh, because otherwise, I think he did something. There's some strange story, like he had it printed on a T-shirt because that was different from smuggling code. I do, I do not. Like heard, I, I do not know about that story. Yeah, I think they tried some creative ways to uh, get like a freedom of speech defense, and then eventually, like the whole attack on it collapsed, and they just acknowledged that you can't censor software, um, which again. It, Interestingly, is the exact same area that Bitcoin's falling under. Like in the long run, you can't censor software. Yeah, I mean exactly because you know is 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 software speech? Uh, it's an interesting question. But anyway, I mean let's let's pick it up in the next conversation. I mean, uh, um, Bitcoin is still your obsession and still going to be your obsession next week. <laughs> <laughs> yep. See you next time. See you next week. Thanks for listening. To support us, please leave a rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also find the link to our Patreon in the episode description. See you next time.